0: Have you ever felt stuck in a mood and perhaps even worse, you didn't even know why you were in it in the first place? What if I told you that you could use your fingertips to tap places on your body to free yourself from emotions, trauma, and moods that were keeping you from being your best self? Well, today, I speak with a healthcare pioneer who has researched and developed quick and easy ways to free you from crippling emotions. Please share this episode with at least one person you care about. And oh, if you're moved to, subscribe and leave a comment about this episode on Apple or Spotify. Enjoy. (laughs) Well, hello and welcome to The Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, your behavioral psychology author. And I'm excited to have this conversation with Dr. Dawson Church, the author of The Bliss Brain. And today we'll be focusing on his research on moods. He's the founder of the EFT Universe, exploring emotional freedom techniques for healing and emotional liberation. Dr. Church, welcome.
1: Timothy, Great to be here. And I love the focus of your mind and your show.
0: <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been on some of my favorite podcasts. So I'm excited for a number of reasons, but one is I really feel my audience is going to value and appreciate your life's work. So let's peel back your brain and go <laughs> inside <laughs> and let's go inside your mind in a fun feature where I ask you seven questions where you can only choose one answer. Can we do that?
1: I'm holding on.
0: (laughs) Let's do it. Here we go. Number one, feeling or thinking.
1: What a fantastic way, lens through which to look at your experience and feeling, 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 because thinking is a layer removed from the body. Thinking is a layer removed from what's really going on. And according to the Buddha, according to Mohandas Gandhi, according to all kinds of really smart people, thinking is the main thing that gets us into trouble and destroys our <laughs> happiness. So let's pick feeling.
0: Awesome. Cappuccino or latte? Oh,
1: coffee in any form. Actually, I had black, but coffee in any form is really welcome. Just before meditation coffee first, meditation second.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number three, massage. Or an acupuncture session?
1: Mm. Now, that's a difficult either or, and probably I would pick acupuncture because acupuncture is working directly on the body's energy meridians, and energetically, that is going to have more of an effect than purely physical manipulation, and there's a ton of evidence. So There are 13,000 acupuncture studies, and they showed it's incredibly powerful, so acupuncture.
0: Awesome. Super. Twitter or LinkedIn?
1: I don't, I don't know anything about either of them no, no i'm not on either of them so <laughs> that's a, a big big, Boy, fat blank there Pause.
0: <laughs> this you know i've been doing this feature for a long time and this is the first pass i've gotten and i'm gonna let you get away with it okay so okay but that's your only pass right by the way number five <laughs> would you rather read Number five: Would you rather read a book by Einstein or sit in on one of his lectures? That's a tough
1: one. I'd definitely <laughs> sit in one of his lectures if I could, though, because then you get the energy of the of the man. You get the real feeling, the the whole uh, what would be called psychology, the gestalt of the moment. So, absolutely, direct experience as opposed
0: to reading. Awesome. Number six: Dinner on a yacht. Or a cruise ship? Well, <laughs> probably a yacht
1: with only one person on it. Because I, I love solitude. And when I'm on the water, I'm usually on a kayak or a paddleboard. So I'm, I'm all alone. So a, a, a yacht a dinner made by myself, eating with me on a
0: yacht. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Finally, number seven. Climbing a mountain or running a marathon? Climbing a mountain, for
1: sure. Just being totally alone in nature and tuning into the all that is, tuning into the mystery, tuning into the absolute symphony that is nature, rather than being with 400 other people or four, four, 44,000 other people and trying to have a goal. I, I think just enjoying nature, letting it seep into your 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 being is so powerful. It has messages for you that you don't get when you're competing and goal-oriented.
0: Well, thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind. You are in Northern California at the moment? Northern California. I can already feel we're going to have an incredible conversation. I want to just jump in and let's talk about moods. What is a mood?
1: Well, I'm thinking back to the work of Fritz Perls. He was the great founder of Gestalt therapy. And so 20th century psychology is dominated by these figures like Mary Catherine Bateson, Margaret Mead, uh, like, uh, Carl Rogers client-centered therapy. Just there were remarkable people making these discoveries. Of course, Freud and Jung at the beginning of the century, uh, Wilhelm Reich who, who focused on the energy part of, of psychology, but, um, what Fritz Perl said was that an emotion is a label for a physical sensation. And when I was in gestalt therapy training, I'd say something to the therapist like, I'm angry. And he said, what do you feel in your body? And I'd say, I feel this pressure in my chest. And he said, what do you feel is pressure in your chest? And you're labeling it anger. And so what we tend to do is we label our emotions and we think that we're, 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 cre- we're, we're doing a useful task when we do that, to name it. It is important to have emotional literacy and to have some idea how to describe our internal intangible workings to other people. And it is always worth coming back to the body. So um, I focus on and teach body-centered therapies. And I'm doing a major project now, with one of the top psychology journals on somatic therapies. You can fix mental things at the level of talk therapy and abstraction. When you have something like prenatal trauma, when you have something like um, early childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences, trying to work at the level of the mind is not useful because that insult was laid down at the level of the body. And so you want to move into that level of emotion and the body. And so that is why focusing on emotion in the body is is really the path to deep healing of our early life stuff. It's fine to do talk therapy for later life stuff, to make late making adult decisions. When we were two, our brains didn't work like that. Our brains hadn't evolved those, had, hadn't wired our prefrontal cortex together yet. So we want to focus really on the body and how we feel and learn the language of the body and the ability to describe our emotions and our physical
0: sensations to other people. Let's talk a little bit about somatology. I think that, you know, this is an emerging field. I mean, it's, it's an old field, but it's becoming quite popular, um, you know, because of a lot of the wonderful work that's been put out recently across the world. But what are some of the findings that you are finding about the study of the mind and body that you've just shared now that's even surprising to you about how effective it is?
1: One of the underappreciated phenomena that is known but is not recognized for its importance is neural plasticity. And so it's fairly recent as in the first early studies were done in the 1950s and it wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s that the idea that our brains were rewiring themselves really gained traction in neuroscience. And so we know that happens and, um, we know that the adult brain is, is changing all the time based on the neural pathways it's using. What people don't appreciate, what people don't understand, what I, I think neuroscience has not really wrapped its mind around yet, as a, as a field, is the speed of neural plasticity. And so, in my book, Bliss Brain, I have one image from a scanning electron microscope. It's a series of six panels, little snapshots of a movie. So it's a movie. It's a video of the shot through the scanning electron microscope that's so high resolution it can actually capture a movie of a single neuron. And so you see these neurons, one's at one side of the screen, the other's at the other side of the movie. And they're jiggling like this a little bit. They're vibrating as they're exchanging signals. They gradually move closer together and eventually they join. They look like two hands that are shaking hands together. So they've gone from here at the beginning of the movie, shaking, signaling, firing together. Now they're wired together. And then you look at the time stamp. Timothy, the time stamp on that movie shows you it took 12 seconds to go from firing to hardwiring together. And that's the speed of wow. our neural signaling and the speed of rewiring our brains. And so our brains are rewiring themselves so rapidly. Microtubules, which are the actual structure, they're the girders. Like if you, if your house was a neuron, the, the, the microtubules are equivalent to the, the beams and the the the, the, the 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 bracing of the walls. It's being created and destroyed in neurons in the brain every 10 minutes, even the structure. Our brains are boiling with activity all the time. And so the way we use them determines the way they're, they're shaped. So I think one of the, the enormously important advances is going to be what brain regions change and what makes them change. We know from meditation research that when we look at Tibetan monks, for example, Franciscan nuns, people who have made a, a lifetime practice of mindfulness, that their brains are, they're not slightly different. They're radically different. They're different anatomically. One particular monk whose brain's been studied now for 30 years, his biological age of his brain is nine years younger that is chronological age. So again, profound shifts. Another s- study in 2020 showed that in people who are doing the opposite of meditation, they are doing negative rumination. They're thinking about the bad stuff. They aren't giving themselves that inner peace. That in elderly people who are ruminating, who are negative thinkers, who are focused on the bad stuff in life, they have a rapid buildup are beta amyloid plaques, Alzheimer's plaques, tau plaques, tangles in the brain and it scales. So the more negative thinking, the greater the volume of Alzheimer's plaques, independent of genetics. We have one very, very strongly uh, predisposed gene, the apo gene that predisposes us to Alzheimer's. Thinking completely obliterates wow. the effect of even a st- the, the Alzheimer's gene has a 92% association with Alzheimer's, that ApoGene 404 combination, yet it, it is negated, it's switched off and that's, in, in, in these monks and nuns, it's it's turned on in people who are negative think- thinkers so the, the way we Incredible. are literally shaping our brains with our thoughts is underappreciated, we're going to start to study this over the next few decades and there'll be amazing findings coming out of that research.
0: Yeah, thank you. You know, the link between thinking and moods and thinking and emotion. Let's break down the sort of the neural architecture. And then let's talk practically about if somebody is listening, going, I can't seem to snap out of my moods. I get seem to get stuck. Let's talk about what's happening in the brain and what's physically, how we can sort of physically alter or hack that sort of cycle.
1: It's hard because we have billions of years of evolution that have that have grown brains that have developed neural structures that place a premium on survival. Like you couldn't go do anything unless you survived first. And so our brains are hardwired in all kinds of ways. I call it caveman brain. And, you know, that's kind of sounds like a pejorative term, but um, those cave (laughs) people, those people, those paleolithic stone age peoples, I mean, they were evolving, they were developing in this world full of threats. And so the extent to which they lived or died, depended on their ability to scan the environment every single second for threats. You missed that rustle in the grass, and the tiger got you. So that's the way our, our brains evolve. It's really hard to shift our thinking. But the so 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I was one of that that group of people, that group of, of science writers and researchers saying, you've just got this kman brain, there's not much we can do to fix it. But now, with the newest research in neural plasticity, and especially looking at the 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 brains of these super happy super meditators, we find that you actually can fix it, and so that part of the brain that handles um, survival, that handles self-obsession. It's also highly focused on the past because you need to think about that tiger that almost got you last week, last month, and what its stripes were like, what the patterns were of its movement. So rumination on past threats is extremely adaptive evolutionarily. We say we're negative thinkers, the brain has a negativity bias. Well, nature didn't invent the negativity bias to torment us. It invented the negativity bias as a survival technique. And so that's why we think obsessively about the pimple on my nose, you know, and we can't, we, we just find something to worry about, about our jobs and our spouses and our careers and our our love life and money. We just obsess about the negative stuff. And that's the way our brain evolved. So hacking it and shifting it is hard and it's possible. We see <clears throat> in those monk and nun studies, We see that part of the brain, especially the mid prefrontal cortex, right behind our eyes. That part of the brain gets really quiet. And these monks and nuns close their eyes. They begin meditating in just two or three seconds. They're dialing down that part of the brain. It goes dormant. And then they snap out of that past rumination and fear of the future. And they come into this wonderful place called the present. Now... Mm in present moment awareness and they 're in the here they 're in the now they 're able to move into self transcendent states they 're no longer obsessed with self they 're moving into self transcendence so that that 's the main um, goal i think of 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 human evolution is we can move to these states, and the cool thing is When you do that every day, when you do every day for a few days, things start to change in your brain. In one randomized controlled trial I did, we compared people doing a very simple set of meditation steps. There are five things they did. They did heart coherence. They did a little bit of self-hypnosis. They did some vagal tone regulation. took about five minutes to get them into this deep state. And we did an MRI study looking at their brain activity before and in 30 days, so just a very, very simple meditation routine. We called it eco-meditation, ECO meditation. So they did eco-meditation every day for 30 days. We compared that to a second controlled group doing mindful breathing. And when we show these composite MRI scans before and after to other neuroscientists, nothing had changed in the group doing mindful breathing. Their brain scans were the same, exactly the same before and after. The group that did eco-meditation after only 30 days, they had anatomical, detectable anatomical changes in their brains. And when we showed them to one neuroscientist who was an expert in Tibetan meditation, he said, Oh, well, it's clear. You're showing me the brain signatures of monks who've been meditating 10 to 20,000 hours for maybe, maybe 20 years. We said, no, those are the brain scans of novices who've been doing eco meditation for 30 days. And he, he just not. Wow fell over. I mean, he was so amazed. (laughs) So that's what we are now discovering with science is you can learn. That's the hack. You do this. And in 30 days you have measurable anatomical changes in your brain with that mid prefrontal cortex, just going dark and liberating you from that obsession with the past and future, bringing you into the present
0: moment. That's incredible. I mean, one of the things I'm absolutely obsessed with is that space between when something happens to you, and when you start to start to feel something. Yes. Right? So your brain kind of sits in the middle. And oftentimes in, you know, the dynamic is, you know, we think there's very little space. You know, and some of my colleagues and friends, a friend of mine named Colin, and many others in somatology is really focused on how do we increase that time between when things happen to you and you react? Let's talk a little bit about that space because I feel like people are giving up their power. You know, they just assume, you know, they they jump into victim mode because they don't understand this dynamic. So let's talk a little bit about that space and how do you increase that space or how do you have more agency inside of the space between what happens to you and how you react?
1: Well, that's why I so like the field of cognitive psychology, because back in the 1910s, 1920s, we had towering figures like Ivan Pavlov doing his research on behavioral psychology and ringing a bell and feeding a dog, and then the dog would salivate at the sound of the bell because it would associate the bell with food. Later on, he could ring the bell without food and the dog would salivate. So our early path 120 years ago in psychology was very much... Stimulus response. I do this, therefore, this over here happens, and so that was a lot of twentieth-century psychology was that way, and then along came people like like Aaron Beck in the nineteen fifties and sixties, and said, "Hey, there's something that happens between stimulus and response, and that is we can activate our mind and have a choice about how we react." We had the Probably the 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 example that will be quoted a thousand years from now, which is Viktor Frankl in in Auschwitz in the concentration camp in World War II, and he said, "You have a choice, even when you're starving and people around you are being murdered every day by brutal guards. You have a choice about how you act." Now that was a remarkable shift in our understanding. We realized it wasn't a stimulus response. It's stimulus choice response. Response. And so you want to, you're totally right, Timothy, in saying, how do we expand that, 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 that choice? One way to do it is to shift those immediate, immediate, um, emotional, physiological responses. I tell people in my classes, I say, you fee- your your teenage son says this thing to you that infuriates you and you respond right away that response that emotional response and then followed by something you say to him is a rise in cortisol it is your fight or flight system turning on it's cortisol adrenaline Shifting, it's genes turning on. Like this one gene that is the gene that codes for cortisol. It's called CYP11B1, and that turns on in a second. That gene starts pumping out, tells you about it, pump out cortisol. So before you know it, you're attacking, you're angry, you're triggered. And so what we find is that this is the 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 human condition of people who aren't asking the question you're asking, which is how do I expand that that moment of choice. And so there are various ways of of interrupting yourself. The somatic ways are the ones I teach. Breathe, just take a deep breath. This isn't new. I mean, Benjamin Franklin said 300 years ago, he said, if you feel triggered, take 10 deep breaths. If you feel already triggered, take a 100 deep breaths. If you're still triggered, take another 100 deep breaths. You know, so breathing, somatic breathing. Joseph Wolpe, another great psychiatrist, discovered after World War II, that Freudian... Uh, psychoanalysis and talk therapy did not work for PTSD. And in fact, many uh, people have discovered in the last while that trying to talk to people who are traumatized, who have early childhood trauma is counterproductive because it re-traumatizes them. So those verbal therapies don't work. Body-based somatic therapies work beautifully. You take that breath. Or my favorite one is acupressure. Acupressure tapping, tapping on acupuncture points, very, very simple. There are just a handful of acupuncture points you can tap on. What we see in MRI studies or EEG studies is the fight or flight response kicks in, people get all upset, and then very, very quickly when they start tapping, like within seconds, you just see on the screen, you watch that those brain signatures just dropping. It's like I, I worked with one one veteran who served four tours of duty in Iraq in the early 2000s. And he was so incredibly triggered by all kinds of nocular stimuli. Like in the studio I was in with him, I was teaching at Omega Institute, big teaching institute in New York. And somebody in the studio with us prinkled a plastic bottle like this. And this young man was ready to dive under the table. He was so triggered because it sounded like small arms fire. So we have these people who are so triggered. After he'd been been doing acupressure stimulation, tapping on acupuncture points, remembering the dead bodies in Iraq, remembering the sound of small arms fire, remembering remembering his friends dying, remembering the ambush. I mean, these are not easy things to treat. After though an hour of working with him and just doing this body-based somatic therapy, getting him back in his body while he remembers. Now, he's having the memories, but is telling his body that that stimulus of the memory is not a reason to go to fight or flight, that I'm safe right here, right now. After that, he could hear somebody deliberately
0: squeeze the a plastic
1: bottle, and he was totally
0: calm. Let's talk about where these acupuncture points are
1: on the body? The ones we use in, it's called Emotional Freedom Techniques, EFT, Tapping. The ones we use in EFT are at the end points of meridians. So there are 14 meridians that might run through the body. They're very easy to find. If you buy a little handheld device called a galvanometer, you can run it over your skin, and when you hit an acupuncture point, its lights will flash and it'll make a beeping sound. And these points are tiny. So, for example, one of them is one of the the main meridians runs all the way from here up the top of your head, down the back of your neck, all the way down to your butt. And that's called your governing meridian. Now that one is your central meridian, which starts over here, runs all the way down. So in my live classes, for example, when I'm with with people in a classroom, I'll take a galvanometer, I'll ask for a volunteer and I'll run it over their face. And when it hits an acupuncture point, the machine starts to make a sound. So they're easy to, f- to find because they have very high conductivity. And so we we find them on people's bodies. They're in roughly the same place. as one over here that's called the gallbladder meridian. One over here called the bladder meridian. One over here called the kidney meridian. One over here, one, I'm sorry, stomach meridian, kidney meridian, spleen meridian. So there are a bunch of meridians. And we have people like that Iraq veteran just tap on these points while they're remembering The bad stuff. And what you see in the brain is that emotional midbrain is highly activated when they're remembering their trauma. Then they're tapping while they're thinking about the trauma and you see the brain calm down later on. They can talk about the trauma and they're no longer activated. So that's extraordinary. Pretty effective for, we've now done this. We've now, we have a, a, a charity called the Veteran Stress Solution. We have now done tapping with over 22 thousand veterans. We've done six randomized controlled trials, two meta-analyses, huge amounts of research, and lots of lives changed by tapping.
0: Incredible. I want to talk about the what trauma physically does to the brain quickly. I think this is important. I think people completely underestimate that trauma actually influences pathways and structures in the brain. And then ultimately what that's doing to you later in life, and why neuroplasticity is, is so important. Uh, but let's start. Like, if you are a child and you experience some level of trauma and various levels of trauma, what is it doing to the actual brain? Because I found, uh, Dawson, that once people understand that this is not a random thing that happened and it's just kind of influencing you kind of on a, on a ghost level, that there is real influence neuroarchitecturally. Can we talk about that? So one of the phrases used
1: in neuroscience is the short path and the long path. The, the short path is what the brains of traumatized people look like. The long path is the, ones, is the, is the path in people who aren't traumatized or who managed to overcome their, their trauma. So the long, long path is the way our brains are meant to work. So information comes from our senses, flows up our neural pathways into our brains, goes through the thalamus, it gets distributed to various parts of the brain for information processing, hits the memory and learning center really quickly. And that memory learning center, the hippocampus, has a predominant job, and that is to match incoming information against past threats. So does this... Rustle in the grass looked like the tiger that almost ate me a month ago or 25 years ago. I mean, we remember these things. We have strong emotion around the tiger. Emotion is our way of encoding that as important. We now know that, oh, a big cat with, with, that's a tawny color with black stripes. That's important. We have a big emotional reaction to that. So the hippocampus makes that match and it makes that match. And so that's what, what it's doing in the brain. If it makes a match and set, and says, okay, this is a real threat. Then it sends a signal to the amygdala, which in tune activates the HPA axis. And again, we start pumping out cortisol. Our bodies go into fight or flight. And all this happens in less than a second. This happens really, really fast. And what the hippocampus does is it says, now, if it's something obviously uh, harmful, if there's really a tiger in the room with us, it sends a signal straight to the amygdala, no thought required. But most information coming in is ambiguous. Like we hear that sound. Is that sound a bottle of crackling or is it a firefight? So the hippocampus is like, I'm, I'm getting this sound. I don't know what it is. Can you help me interpret it? So it refers that signal up through the several parts of the brain to the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex separates harmful from innocuous stimuli and it sends a signal back to the hippocampus saying it's just a bottle crackling do not send that signal to the amygdala and turn the body on in fight or flight and so that's what's meant to happen most most of us if we're if we've done a lot of a remediation of our childhoods. We have that long path going on where the hippocampus is referring stuff to the prefrontal cortex, which is then interrupting anything that's innocuous. What happens with traumatized people is that the signal starts going straight from the hippocampus to the amygdala without that long loop to see, is this really something harmful or is this something harmless? And so the brain starts to change after it's been doing that for five, 10, 15, 20 years, one thing people don't realize is that PTSD as a diagnosis gets worse over time. We have people who, who phone us, for example, or email us at the Veteran Stress Solution, They they tell us, you know, my, my dad got back from Iraq in 2008, and now it's been 15 years, it's getting crazier and crazier by the year. And what's happening is that short path is there, that looping trauma is there and he can't escape. You can't think yourself out of it because it's not referring the hippocampus is not referring this to the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex. It's just sending the signal straight into fight or flight. So now dad has a hair trigger temper. A guy is him in a bar. He just hits him. We have one uh, volunteer who worked doing EFT tapping with death row prisoners in, um, in San Quentin, in San Quentin State Penitentiary in California near me. And these, these men coming to him for EFT tapping were like that. One young Hispanic man was there for murdering people. He just, he just, he just, petty, he just murdered people and he, he he had a hair trigger temper. After five tapping sessions, he wrote us a beautiful letter and he said, you know, I realize now just because somebody says something insulting or triggering to me in the prison courtyard, I don't have to hit him. Before that, it was like, the short path. He disses me. I hit him. He disses me. I hit him. Just, just no, no question about it. And in fact, where well, he was in, 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 on death row because uh, somebody dissed him and he killed him. So, um, that had been the short path in his life, in his brain, the whole, whole, his whole life long. Now the San Quentin prisoner is saying, you know, he disses me. I can take a breath. I can tap. And I can walk away. And that's why we call it emotional freedom techniques. Did this guy ever get out of prison? No, he's still in death row. Does he have a much better life? Absolutely, as a result of doing that.
0: So just to be clear, when somebody experiences sexual trauma or anything in their childhood that, that creates a shorter link, a shorter loop cycle, that is the fundamental, that shorter cycle is the fundamental reason why we react in a particular way. You are traumatized and therefore this shorter cycle impacts your response or how you behave. It ultimately impacts behavior. Look, I mean, I just want to make that really, really clear. I think this is an important point for a lot of people. One of the reasons I wanted to have this is that that shorter cycle of that alteration, there is an alteration of how your brain is working, Right.
1: There's an alteration of the way your brain is working, and it was really useful to you when you were two years old, and your father was an alcoholic, and your mother was a rageaholic, and you needed just to get out of their way when they were around. So that short loop was enormously useful. It, it helped you survive when you were two, three, four, five, nine, ten, twelve 10, 12 years old. But if you just built that loop in and keep on looping that same way when you're 20 or 30, now you're reacting to a a snarky email you get from a colleague. And rather than just breathing and holding them in compassion and saying, maybe they're having a bad day, you react just like that. And so we're reacting to our children, our parents, to our work life, to the news. The news is something, it's definitely worth being aware of what's going on in the world, but, you know, read it once a day, read it once a week. There's nothing you need to know right this very moment. Also, I, I, Timothy, if I can just put in a, a, a personal plug here for turning off your alerts. I just recommend everyone I know in my, all my broadcasts, all my <laughs> workshops, I say turn off your alerts. You don't need to know when someone sends you a text or a message. Have a, m- make you the. Ruler of your life. Don't make other people's needs and wants and and impulses your your ruler. You decide. I'll I'll, I'll carve a carve out a two-hour window each day, say two to four p.m. I'll get my important priorities done for me first in the first few hours of my day. Then I'll go look at all my emails and texts. I'll batch them and do them all together. So other people are, are running our lives so, so often and we, and then we, we react to them. So give yourself meditation, give yourself personal time, give yourself time for your priorities and don't let all of these stimuli, especially the news get to you. Don't, don't look at the news first thing in the morning. Just don't do it. I mean, wait until you've got some downtime and you're, you've got some, less active time later in the day. Uh, Give yourself the benefit of that creative period every morning. Let the world take care of itself for those few hours and take care of you and your needs.
0: So the fact is when you do that, you put off, you protect your space a bit more. You protect your brain a bit more from all of this stimuli notifications. You are creating the effect in your brain where there's an elongated sort of effect to give you more space and time to react to things. You are strengthening your brain's ability to respond.
1: You are. And with practice, it really, really shifts. In that eco-meditation study, 30 days, 22 minutes a day, and people had both a shutdown of the prefrontal cortex, of the the mid-prefrontal cortex, that that seat of suffering, and they also had uh, an up, Regulation, a higher level of activity in the pro social emotion part of the brain, the insula, which is the seat of compassion, gratitude, joy, all of those positive emotions. That part of the brain was highly active in those people after 30 days. So it doesn't take long 22 minutes a day, 30 days, and your brain is anatomically and functionally different.
0: There was a study where a, you may have heard of it, a Wall Street banker just kept feeling this extraordinary impulse to shoot his wife and kid who he loved dearly. And he woke up one morning and couldn't control himself anymore. And he did it, he got to work in his big tower in um, lower Manhattan and shot a couple of colleagues. And before he shot himself, he wrote a note and said, please study my brain. I don't understand why I'm feeling this overwhelming impulse to do this. And then he shot himself. Then did, they did end up studying his brain and discovered there was a tumor, small tumor pressing up against the amygdala. I want to talk about extreme cases now uh, before we wrap up. Are there times when there is scar tissue to build up or tumors that have built up putting pressure on particular parts of the brain, making it very, very difficult to control yourself?
1: Yeah, that's that's rare. And what is more common is brain shrinkage or growth over time. Just the way our muscles grow, if we use them, and they shrink if we don't use them, parts of our brain are growing. So what we see, for example, in the brains of Tibetan monks who've been meditating a long time, 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, up to 60,000 hours, is we see shrinkage of the amygdala. The amygdala is literally atrophying. They just aren't reactive. They aren't using it. They haven't gone into fight or flight for years. And that part of the brain starts to shrink. You now have this radiant peace. And what we're now studying is field effects of these people. And the field effect means that when you're in a room with them, everyone in the room gets more peaceful. And our electromagnetic field of our heart extends about <laughs> three meters away from the body. And so Incredible. when you're in a room with people, you're affecting them from a distance of six meters, six yards away. That's a long way away from the people around you. So, you feel peaceful, that regulates the autonomic nervous systems, the fight or flight in everyone around you. That effect spreads out. Go to a a, a, a gathering, like I went to a gathering once with a a, a a modern master called Chidvalasananda, but Ama, you go see Ama, you'll feel the same thing. There are lots of these modern ma- masters, Gangaji, and so you're in a room and there are 2,000 people in the room And everyone is just feeling incredibly blissful, incredibly peaceful. The field effect from one person. So we're now studying this. And we're now experimenting with getting people in rooms together. What we find is that one person like that, they're in coherence. Their heart is in coherence. Their brain is in brain coherence. Now, these people who are in heart-brain coherence are literally able to affect Large numbers of people around them. I think that's that's a lot of the the way that the Buddha, Jesus, Lao Tzu, all of these great teacher, teachers, Gandhi, uh, Nelson Mandela. I think many of these people. I mean, Nelson Mandela learned peace in prison. He was imprisoned on Robben Island for over two decades, and he learned to be so incredibly centered and peaceful. Read his 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 work about. He wasn't a perfect human being. But he learned to be, to be this, this peaceful human being. So much so, eventually his guards were among the people agitating for his, his release because they said, this guy, how would we be imprisoning a guy? So he's affecting people in prison. Another, another man was imprisoned for, um, for two murders in Alabama in the 1980s and he served Twenty years in, in in prison there, and yet he again the guards all came to the conclusion that he didn't do it, and that um, he was able to affect everyone in the whole prison. So there are these 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 field effects that starts to happen as we're that peaceful. Uh, Ramana Maharshi, a great Indian teacher of the early twentieth century, he said, "If you want to change the world, awaken, change yourself, find that level of." coherence inside, and that's the way the world changes. So it's great to want to change the world. The world needs changing. We have all kinds of social injustice. We have climate change. We have racial injustice. We have gender inequality. There are all kinds of ills we need to work on in society, and it all starts with what what you were saying earlier, that gap between stimulus and response, mastering ourselves, and then we can make a real difference in the
0: world. Dr. Dawson Church, thank you so much for joining us on the Brainerd Branch
1: Timothy, what a joy. Thank you.